Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Natasha Hastings about her middle grade novel, The Miraculous Sweetmakers, The Frost Fair. As we're just a few days away from Christmas, I have to tell you that this book makes the perfect gift for a child this Christmas, which is why I was so eager to get Natasha on the show. Natasha started writing her novel while studying history at Cambridge University, focusing on gender and mental illness. She can usually be found with a head in a book or over a cooking pot. In this episode, we discuss disability representation in fiction, writing about grief for a younger audience, and how she's learnt to become a chaotic planner, in her words, not mine. But first, here's Natasha with an excerpt from The Miraculous Sweetmakers, The Frost Fair. Thomasina's mouth fell open and she stepped back in surprise. Inigo, she said in a horrified whisper, huddling close to him. Those people are made of ice. Inigo smiled at her, unruffled by her alarm. Yes, my dear, a a good observation. These are the frost folk, inhabitants of the other frost fair. I've seen two people like that before, Thomasina said, her legs feeling like they were made of jelly as she continued to back away. They were outside the church, wearing grey cloaks, and one of them looked at me later in the street. Their eyes were completely iced over. Inigo gave her a gentle smile, though his eyes seemed a little wary. Don't worry about them, he said, in a voice that sounded a little too hearty. They're friends of mine, and there's so much they as well as I want to show you at the other frost fair. Look, he pointed. See what they're doing now. Thomasina still felt nervous after the shock of seeing the frost folk, but she reasoned with herself that nothing was normal in the strange, ethereal world of the other frost fair. She'd already met animals made of ice here, so why should meeting people with shimmering silver snowflakes patterned all over their skin be any different? Her gaze travelled to where Inigo's finger pointed. Some of the frost folk were river hawkers, selling a kaleidoscope of items she'd never seen before. A few shouted about crystal tiaras and ice-coloured pendants, while others waved bottles emitting indigo sparks. Everyone was dressed in a different style. Some wore togas, their silvery knees and calves bare to the elements. Some were clad in sparkling suits of armour, and others wore enormous breeches like inigos. Dancing girls in glittering blue dresses leapt about, spinning in mid-air. 
Thomasina gaped at them all, amazed. Hi Natasha, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about the miraculous sweet makers, The Frost Fair, your debut middle grade novel. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. It's a bit of a mouthful, your title, so I'm going to shorten <laughs> it to uh, The Frost Fair when we talk about this, because it is the first in the series. I was wondering, yeah. as it is the first in the series, can you tell us what it's about? So during the Great Frost of 1683, Two girls sell sweets on the frozen River Thames in London and find themselves drawn into the mysterious world of a magical conjurer. It has themes of the power of friendship, the way grief shapes us all, and how love can warm even the coldest heart. Beautiful. It's such a <laughs> magical book and it's honestly perfect for this time of year when it's cold outside and it's Christmassy and it's, it's beautiful. I was wondering then whether your idea of this novel began with this idea of the frost fair because there were several on the river thames was that your starting inspiration or was it something else yeah i think it was you know i i i basically i thought of the idea when i was in hospital and i think the first thing i remember visualizing was just someone and i i didn't quite have an idea of who they were but someone i think it was maybe myself i was traveling back in time um and, and sort of walking on the frozen river Thames at night. And I remember in my mind sort of seeing lots of magical things around me and I wasn't quite sure what they were yet. Um, so that was the starting point. And I remember every night that I was in hospital, I thought of magical adventures that I could go on. Um, so that's really how it started, but it always, it started on the frozen river Thames in London. And had you always kind of thought that you wanted to, write children's fiction you know what's funny I always wanted to write children's fiction I really did because I I did this thing where um I don't know if you've ever across emails that you can send to yourself <laughs> or like years time um, or whatever it is yeah, I can't remember which one it was but it was something like that I was going through them the other day and I sent them to myself ever since I was about maybe 15 or 16 I think I used different ones each time but I remember like a really common denominator in all of them was have you written the kids book yet? Because I, I knew I really wanted to do it. But strangely enough, The Frost Fair was first written as a book for grown-ups, which um, I think it was because, but you know, I, I think I, I love I love reading historical fiction for all ages. But for some reason, I, I think it, because I was casting myself in the role to start with, I thought, well, I'm I'm a grown-up, age 21. I can't, you know, and then... Um, and then actually, I, I wrote it for, I think it was about a year, I wrote it as a as a bit for grown-ups, and I thought, no, the voice just the voice just, just feels younger. And then I put it in a drawer for a bit, and then when I took it out, I wrote it just as a just as a children's book. So that's a very, very roundabout way of saying, yes, I've always wanted to write children's books. <laughs> but it wasn't the intention necessarily with this book. That's so interesting. So if you were kind of casting yourself in the leading role... How did you get from that to Thomasina? Can you tell us a little bit about Thomasina? Sure. So I think um, I think Thomasina has many similarities to me. I think I think I see Thomasina as a creature of duality. She's both incredibly ambitious but also very shy. I think she has so much fierceness and sharpness to her, which I just, you know, I I, I think I do too. But I, I think at the same time, she's a people pleaser at heart and. 
I think she really struggles to, she, she sort of has this upbringing sort of looking out for other people around her that I think has sort of made her grow into that side of her personality. And I think that underneath it all, she's, she's a different person entirely. And I think she really wrestles with this sense of duty uh but also adventure and I think I do too to be honest I think most people do they sort of we we want to have really exciting lives and do amazing things but we have to think about the practicalities of everyday life and I think that can be really hard sometimes um and I think yeah I really wanted to to write about about uh, someone like that really um so I think I basically used the dualities within myself I think I put that into a, a character I often find that I put very real things that I feel or experience into a story and I kind of work out how I feel about things through them mm, I think that's quite common um yeah definitely even if even if we don't intend our characters to <laughs> be like us there is we always put ourselves into them a little bit um maybe we do <laughs> not into, like the worst characters but you know <laughs> I hope not so what's it like writing historical fiction for children? Did you find it to be quite challenging to balance that kind of giving them the flavour of the time without making it, I guess kids maybe sometimes approach history as thinking it's a bit dull, but obviously your yeah. book is really accessible and it's really exciting. So what was that like to, to on a practical level, like what was that like to write? I think... It was interesting because I never used to be interested in history at school at all. And then I remember um, there was a teacher who um, we were learning the, about the Romans that year at school. And I remember this teacher who I was actually really frightened of at the beginning of the year. Um, she said, oh, we're going to have a Roman feast. And I remember we ate, I think it was tea, like cheddar cheese. <laughs> um I just remember thinking that's so exciting I just because I felt for the first time excited um in that subject and then I just started devouring um all the horrible histories series um stuff and but also lots of historical fiction so I'd, I'd sort of grown up on a I'd, I'd, re I'd read a lot of fantasy as a kid but also a lot of historical fiction and I think what helped me was I think I see historical historical fiction is it feels like fantasy fiction for me a lot of the time because I feel like yes of course there are similarities between us and people of the past but there are so many differences um and then when I studied history at university I think it kind of helped me give that sort of helped me realize what kind of history I really am interested in which is social history sort of how people lived how every ordinary people lived I am interested to a point about kings and queens but I'm much more interested in sort of um yeah how ordinary people live their lives so I think that was a good starting point for me when it came to writing for kids um you know it's always difficult isn't it because you you never want to you want to be age appropriate um and I think how I went about that was I instead of thinking of the things that I had to sort of guard and make sure weren't too stressful to for, for a, a sort of nine to twelve year old to hear about I started thinking of all the aspects of history that I could include. So I really, really, I'm so excited and interested about the everyday lives of working women and how they formed their own economy, how bartering systems came about. I'm interested in the histories of disability. I just really wanted to sort of embrace those histories and, and just write about them in a way that I felt maybe kids could understand and be interested in. 
Um, so yeah, I think I just thought of things I could include rather than exclude. Um, but yeah, sometimes you have to be careful about about um, language used or or sort of particular aspects of history that are discussed. And I think it was really, I think my editor played a really great role in that and sort of saying, hey, this is a bit scary. Let's take it out. Um, So I really appreciated that guidance. Yeah, I mean, the kind of, I mean, maybe we'll talk a little bit now about the the illustrations in your book because there's something about them which there's a slightly kind of creepy element to some of them. And I think the whole, the other frost fair is is called in, in the novel, there's there is a sinister element to it how did you feel when you saw those illustrations I mean they're stunning how did you how did you feel when you saw them oh I mean I just I feel so grateful and lucky to work with Alex T Smith um he's just incredible he's also just such a lovely person (laughs) we dm each other about sort of dogs with funny hats and stuff (laughs) that kind of thing so yeah a delight to work with but also just he's just so remarkably talented and I think it just it felt real for the first time when I saw there's there's nothing like someone taking what you've written and sort of fusing it with their own imagination. Mm. I think it's a magic in itself, really. I think one of my favorite pictures is there's a like a, a coach chase, um, which I really love the way he's drawn the trees, but there's also a beautiful picture of a, a Kelpie rising out of the frozen sort of other frost fair area. And I remember seeing that for the first time and just thinking oh my gosh it's real um so yeah I just feel I feel so lucky and it I just don't think there's anything quite like seeing another person sort of taking inspiration for what you've written and creating something of their own I just think it's yeah I just feel so so lucky I think my favorite illustrations was of um do you pronounce it in a go yeah yeah Yeah. I mean it can be pronounced anyway um so yes uh I'd love to talk a little bit a little bit about Inigo because oh, your novel has this element of adventure and a little bit of mystery, I suppose, because we're not ever quite sure what's happening with this other frost fair. Um, can you tell us about this other frost fair that Thomasina gets taken to and tell us a little bit about Inigo? Sure thing. So Inigo is one of my favourite characters. I I love writing morally complex or morally grey characters so much. And I think Inigo really is is that person. So we first see him in the sweet shop that Thomasina works in. And essentially he guides her to this, through magic, to this other frost fair, which is a frost magical frost fair that only appears at night. No one quite knows where it's come from, but it's full to the brim of frost beasts, which are creatures with frozen over eyes and beautiful glittering fur and silver and blue colours and frost folk who are people who are also iced over and um, who seem to be completely ethereal. And and uh, there are many things that are put on the frost bed. There's something different every night. So there could be a magical theatre one night. There can also be a magical ball the other there's so much to explore and at the heart of it is the person who rules over all of them who's called Father Winter and you know word on the street is he's quite spooky <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would, I would yeah. totally agree that I can I can I mean hopefully not too many nightmares about Father Winter yeah. <laughs> I definitely feel like he's the kind of character when you're reading it as a child you'd be like quickly turn the page (laughs) yeah I've got a feeling about you I think also what I really like about Inigo 
I I feel like his story mirrors Thomasina's because I just feel like for both of them they're searching for redemption, and I feel like that's also why I like him. Mm. Father Winter, I have no time for. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that redemption then, because you don't shy away from the kind of darker sadder topics and more serious topics because I mean the novel opens with Thomasina's brother Arthur dying and yeah you, you spend a long time and the novel explores the kind of impact of grief and guilt that she has associated with his death um so how I know I want to talk a little bit more about the 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 asthma representation in the novel yeah. in, a, in a bit yeah. but tell me why the kind of the sadder topics or the the more serious topics were important for you to explore in the novel? I think that sometimes I don't feel we talk enough about the, the guilt that can accompany loss and bereavement. Um, I think people talk a lot about grief, but I, I feel like I feel like guilt can be really wrapped up in there, this sense of sort of going on without another person. Yeah, so and I think it was important for me also to sort of I've really tried to weave it into the fabric of the magic. I want it to be sort of lots of different storylines happening at once kind of thing. Um, But I also remember when I started writing it, really wanting to sort of also do a service to the idea that people experience grief and loss very differently. And just because someone might be more obviously grieving, it doesn't mean that the other person who is not as obviously grieving isn't grieving. You know, sometimes still waters run deep. Sometimes some people sort of wear their heart on their sleeve. It doesn't mean that people are feeling any less. So that was really important to me to weave in as well. I think it's also important to say, and this is sort of connected to the aspect thing that I think we'll talk about later, but I sort of, I I edited this book during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, that was such an emotionally charged time where I feel like death was brought to the forefront just you know in a way that it just hadn't been in our society um at least in recent years and I feel like we were all having national discussions about death and bereavement and grief and grief and and I just uh I think I think it was all wrapped up in in I think it's very much a product of its time as much as it is you know, a novel in itself I think it's a little bit of a time capsule into into some of the feelings that were that were around then mm. yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the asthma element because um yeah. i know that's a really important topic for you to explore and both the siblings in the book have it and it's probably something that people wouldn't even consider as a yeah something happening in victorian times um but i know that's a topic kind of close to your heart and something that you were really keen to well you've mentioned that you were really keen about sort of disability in history so to tell us about yes that. yeah so um I think it's important for me to note that I have I mean it's been classed as severe asthma um during the during, during the time when such labels were being used I was um classed as uh, being clinically extremely vulnerable and I, I suppose when I started writing it it was before the pandemic happened and I the reason I'd been in hospital is because I had pneumonia but I also had really quite a few asthma attacks um of you know varying severity um they weren't you know some of them were quite mild some of them weren't so mild at all 
and I think uh, it was it was uh, partly written just because I, I don't think I've ever I mean I'm sure there are books out there who who do have these but I I've never personally um, read a book with a like a book for children with a with a child who had asthma and again I'm sure there are many out there but I personally never read one and I just remember again I think it's just doing service to sort of what it, what was going on in my life and I feel like for me to write without disability is is to feel kind of incomplete as a writer um it, for me it's not sort of oh by the way this person has this it's just like yeah they happen to have this because that's my lived experience so you know and um and I think so I think that was really important my film as well just people don't really take asthma very seriously sometimes um either and it could be completely life-threatening people still die of it and I think it was really important for me to to sort of do justice to that and not to you know and, and I should say that both the twins have asthma and Thomasina she goes through the novel going on magical adventures she still has asthma sometimes she has to take breaks sometimes she has to listen to her body and that's really important I and I've said this before that I think children's and young adult fiction are miles ahead of the game compared to adult <laughs> fiction, especially when it comes to disability representation and you know I think I think I'm going to say I think the industry should be ashamed about how poor the representation is for disability yeah. in fiction and particularly in yeah. adult fiction um, and I did a, a talk this month for Disability History Month and I I didn't quiz people because I didn't think that'd be fair but I said to the room yeah. I if I asked you I don't think you would be able to name a mainstream disabled author or a yeah. disabled character um, and yeah. if, you, if you could name a disabled character, I'm guessing it probably wouldn't be either an own voices book or a character yeah. who was particularly authentic or uh, a positive kind of example of, of someone who is represented in fiction that is disabled. Um, and I'm yeah. so pleased that fiction seems to be changing for YA and, and children's and yeah. that you are so passionate about it and hope that one day one day it will filter through into adult fiction as well hopefully things yeah. are changing for the better i just yeah we need we need more books featuring disability by disabled authors it's that simple the industry can still be very inaccessible um and this is this isn't just you know about writing really this is this is so many industries in the creative industries one thing that I've really noticed is such a drop in virtual events um, past a certain date. And I just think it would be so simple just to just to set up a laptop and live stream stuff. So why don't we do that? And, you know, so I really, I really do hope the, the industry changes. I really, yeah, I'm glad there is some change happening. Mm. But imagine very, it's very frustrating, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, we could, we could start a whole new podcast about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to touch on the fact that this novel is the first in the series and I was wondering kind of how that impacts your planning in terms of story because there's a hint at the end of the book that there's a, a new beginning on the horizon a new business on the horizon so did you always yeah. kind of envision these characters having multiple adventures and lots of books I mean do you know how many potential books there might be in the series? 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I it was really interesting because I I remember finishing the frostbound thinking oh I really hope I really hope that I get to write more but I didn't really I don't know I didn't, I didn't really think I would be allowed or <laughs> I didn't I didn't think it would really happen and I remember sending it off and my agent Josie girl and I we we sent it off as a standalone and um you know from from a couple of publishers who offered um they they said oh yeah that's fine as a standalone and they kind of just expected me to write another book sort of in the same vein um but a completely different sort of time period and stuff but I just remember um my editor Michelle at HarperCollins just said no we want this to be a series I was like yes um because I just thought it yeah I just I just thought it um I, I really wanted to go to go back and I think I really wanted to see um, the two main characters, Anne and Thomasina. I wanted them to grow up together and just because I think being 13, 14 is such a special time in someone's life. And it was really important for me to see them develop as people. So I just feel I feel really grateful that I get to do that. In terms of uh, the number of books. So I've at the moment I've planned out, including the software, I've planned out three books just because I think it's important to to sort of have a really satisfying conclusion at the end of every book, but also for it to feel like it's making meaning. But, you know, I've also, I'm very open to having more books in the series too, because <laughs> um, I have ideas of what could happen after this huge climax at the end of um, book three. So, so we will see, but yeah, I feel very grateful to be in this position. Yeah. And um, publishers, if you're listening, we want more <laughs> of the miraculous sweet makers. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd love to talk a little bit more about your kind of writing routine, your writing journey. Yeah. What is, do you have a routine? Are you someone that is a big planner? What is it like for you? Um, unfortunately, uh, well, actually, okay. So, so I should say, I think I'm what they like to, what I like to say is a chaotic planner in that 
what I have learned to do, I think primarily because of book deadlines, if I'm honest, it wouldn't come naturally to me if I didn't do it. Because um, I used to be a discovery writer. Now, what I do is I plan the outline of the book, then I very much put it into sort of chapter one, five bullet points of what happens. And I find that really helps me. It really helps steer me, especially because I like to flit. I like to flit from doing like half a chapter here to maybe a paragraph here. And I think that really helps sort of keep some sense of momentum going. Um, but yeah, apart from that, in terms of when I write and routine and stuff, I don't I don't have a routine. I know I should have one, but I don't. <laughs> I think it's difficult because I, I think, so I freelance as well. And I think, you know, freelance life is just a bit chaotic in itself, isn't it? No matter how much you try and structure your day. Um, but I do, I do prefer writing in the morning just because I feel like really sort of my mind is very fresh. Um, and I also really like, write, like writing in the very late evening. But I don't have siestas, so I always have to sort of break my own heart and choose which which time period in the morning I'm going to uh, in the morning or the uh, evening I'm going to write. So I should probably start having naps in the middle of the day. I think that might sort everything out. <laughs> what is the kind of good writing day for you? Then do you? Um, people always ask me like, how many hours do you write a day? And I think they would love me to say I write from nine to five, and I really don't. Oh, I don't. No, what, what is no. a, what is a good day for you like how many hours or words or what is what's good for you I think a good day for me is so this doesn't happen like all the time obviously but I think a good day for me is usually writing about a thousand words an hour but I can only do that up to about three thousand and then I just lag and I remember I had to write I had to write a um book for as in I had to write one of my books for a deadline and I had to come up with this whole section, uh, which involved a few new chapters. And I only had a few days to do it because I, had, I hadn't been very well. So I just wrote 4,000 words for five days. And I hated, I, I didn't hate the writing, but I hated being under that pressure. So I definitely cannot do that number of words. Usually it was just desperation that drove me off. Um, I, I like to write maybe 2,000 words a day when I'm sort of um, writing the first draft. And then after that, I think when I'm editing, it's usually just... I don't really count it in terms of hours because I find that quite dangerous because I can just I can always sort of stay at my desk and think you haven't done enough and I don't think that's a good way to go about things so I just I just try and go on vibes like do I feel like I've done enough that day and if I have I have. So what's the part of writing that you find kind of the most challenging and have you kind of found any techniques to get over that now or are you still like this is the bit I hate the most and I still haven't found a way to stop hating it? (laughs) Um, so I think the the parts that I find most challenging, there are two of them. And the first is the structural edits, which I'm sure everyone says because they're evil. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, having to move your book around and sort of rearrange its organs is quite stressful. Really. Um, so I find that I find that hard. And I also find the find the last bit when you're trying to pol- when I'm trying to polish the language um and just try to make it sparkle as much as I can I find that really difficult because I think oh this is it there's only you know this, this is the last bit really and I think for both of them I I sort of well I used to do this when I didn't have a book out and now I do I sort of hold my book um which is probably ridiculous but I I think you have done it before you can do it again and think how great it will feel that you've done this work and that you've really tried instead of you know sort of doing a half-baked attempt at doing something how good will it feel if you you know you hold your book in your hands in two years time or whatever and 
you feel like you've poured everything into it because I don't know about you, but I have found that with Frostfair, but I should say it's only like very little things because I did do a lot of work on it. Um, I think partly because it was my first one. But I do find that um, I, I still now I'm editing it. So I read, I read, um, I think I had to read uh, a chapter the other day for something. And I remember thinking, oh, I should have, I just should have put this little detail in here. And I think I live in fear of, of having that feeling. Um, and I think I will always have that feeling, but I feel like I'm trying to minimize that feeling as much as possible with other books, basically. I don't know if you find that at all, that you start to edit in your head, even though it's published. I have a confession in that I did a reading recently in public and rewrote out loud one of the sentences. Oh my goodness, I love that. That's I only added two words, but I'd I looked at it and thought, I'm just no one's gonna know. I'm just gonna add two words. Yeah, no one's gonna know. And That's I fine. haven't I haven't reread the book since it was published. I don't know about you, but I just feel I like I would be I have listened to the audiobook, which I loved. Yeah. Um, because that felt like a different experience. That felt like yeah. someone was performing it, which they were obviously because the actor that performed the Sea Women was amazing. Um, so yeah, that that felt like a different experience. But reading it again, when I read it seventy times, no thanks. Yeah. I think I'm going to give it a few more months until I read. I think I'll probably read it. I think I'll probably read it next year because I, I I do. I don't know about you, but I. I left it for a few months um, and then when I had to go back to it, it's like, I wrote this? Like, this This is a this is a stranger wrote this. Who are they? Because just, you know, sometimes you forget you've written a book sometimes and you're like, oh, I see. Yeah, <laughs> I that's to... how, that is how okay. I start with the audiobook. So I, I'm, I yeah, really, yeah. yeah. So I'd love to know if you could tell us how you came to get your agent. How did it all happen for you? Sure thing. So I was very uh, surprisingly planned a lot about this because I thought, okay, I really, you know, I really believe in this book and I really want it to to go as well as it can. You know, obviously no one has really any control over it, but I I knew I wanted to send it out in September because I thought, you know, it's the start. Of, it's my one of my favorite months, and I thought it's the start of start of the school year, which you know isn't really a thing, but it still feels like school, even though I haven't been to school in ages. Um, so yeah, I sent it out in September of 2020. And then I was lucky in that I had a few agents offers. And but Chloe Seeger, who's at Madame Melbourne Agency, she was the first person I spoke to. And that I think was about after maybe two or three weeks of sort of first querying stuff. Um she'd read the full by then and we had a call. And I just I just remember thinking that. Because I'd had advice from a friend of mine who uh, was already an author. And I'll never forget it. She said, no, don't just go for the person who is great to talk to now and who you feel good with. Go for the person who you think, if you were in a having a difficult time or if your book was having a difficult time, if your book didn't sell well, would they be there for you? Would they be picking up being like, no, I still believe in you, you can do it. And it was really, you know, it was difficult because I met really fantastic agents and, you know, I just felt with Chloe, she really understood what I was trying to do and she also chased me a lot. Like, not not in a bad way, but she would email me, like, she went on holiday, I remember. And then she went for a weekend away somewhere and she emailed me after she came back and she said, hey, so when I was on my weekend away, I I thought about your book and I thought about how Thomasina would see it. And I just thought, that's so cool that, you know... 
I just felt I, I just feel she's really good at this with with all her with all her authors that she represents. Everyone I've spoken to who I know who's represented by her says the same thing, which is she's she just believes in you. She really fights for you. And I think and she's also so good at communication too, which I think is really underrated in an agent. She just sort of always replies to everyone really speedily. And I think that's great. So so yeah, that's how I met her really. It was very much love at first sight, but professional. <laughs> So do you have any advice for anyone who would love to write middle grade fiction? I would say that I think the biggest piece of, well, there are quite a few, but I, I'll I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and name like maybe the two biggest one pieces of advice. I think the first is if you want to be traditional, uh, I should say as well, um, I really, I think self-publishing is a great way to go, but I don't know anything about it. So everything I say is coming from a very traditionally published lens, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I just, it's the only thing I know. Um, so I have no idea how it would work um, with other stuff, but that's what's, you know, I think it's a great way to do it. In terms of traditional publishing, I think one of the most important things to do is to read what has been published in the last one to two years, because um, I, I think it's just a really good way of seeing what structure people like, sort of how long a book should be, the kind of tone of voice, the um, the sort of age range for sort of uh you know, what people expect in terms of scariness or spookiness as well, I think is really important. And sort of the voice, I think, you know, obviously we can't really put, we don't really know how to create a voice. We just have our own voices, but it can be really interesting seeing people's different styles. And the second thing I would say as well is um, I genuinely approach, and I, I know that other people who also write Kidlet um, approach, just writing a children's book. Like we're writing a novel, we are writing it, you know, even if it's funny, there there is a lot of seriousness in being funny and there's a lot of seriousness, there's a lot, a lot of humour sometimes in even the saddest points of life. But the point is, I think it's really important for authors to not talk down to children. I think also people shouldn't shy away from having, writing children who have flaws um, because there's nothing wrong with having flaws. All of us have flaws. And I, I think it's really important for kids to see other characters who can be a bit spiky sometimes, who can be a bit sharp sometimes, who have, you know, who who aren't perfect. Yeah, those are the three big things I would say. It's really important to, to, to yeah, to sort of go forth and write what, what you want to write, but also just have in mind that just, you're writing a book for a person. It, yeah okay they're a bit younger but they're a person with their own they've experienced a lot probably children do go through a lot <laughs> so you know children have been through a lot over the past couple of years especially they they already are worldly even if you might you know children have experienced grief children have experienced the loss of a, of a friend even if it's a friend who doesn't want to play with them in a playground or something you know there are lots of things that children go through that I sometimes think adults lose sight of mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's the three I think and finally, I know you have so many exciting things coming out that we can't talk yeah. about, but can you tell us or give us a little hint about what's next for the Miraculous Sweet Makers? So I can't tell you, I don't think I can tell you the title yet, but I'm really excited for people to read book two in the Miraculous Sweet Makers series. It features my favourite villain um, so far that I've written. I'm very, very, very excited for readers to meet them. I think uh, they're a very different villain to the villain in book one, but I hope in a in a bit of an interesting way. Um, also, there will be plenty of magical adventures. Uh, it will 
be set in a different season. Uh, so yeah, uh, which I'm really excited about writing. And I mean, I've, I've written it, but I'm excited about editing, I should say. And you get to see Anne and Thomasina sort of grow together. I don't know. I just, I just love seeing them grow up. So I'm really proud of them. They are fictional, but I'm very proud of both of them. I think, yeah, and I'm proud of their friendship that they have. So yeah, I, I hope people enjoy it. <laughs> well, that sounds so exciting. And we are in the perfect season for people to pick up uh, the first in the series right now. So thank you so much, Natasha, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. Honestly, it's been wonderful. Thank you. That was Natasha Hastings talking about her middle grade novel, The Miraculous Sweetmakers, The Frost Fair, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Before I go, I just wanted to wish those of you who celebrate a very happy Christmas. I'll be back next week, as usual, with two more brilliant authors and their books. These episodes were some of my favourite to record. So I really hope you'll listen and enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.